This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Chris. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. I've been wanting to do an episode on exercise and fitness, and it's a topic some of our listeners have brought up as well on our Discord channel. And that'll be the focus of today's episode. And joining me to discuss this topic is Chris Batsky. Chris is the owner of Elemental Fitness Lab in Portland, Oregon. He's a strength and conditioning coach, a functional movement and corrective exercise specialist, and a longtime martial artist. He's also been a health and fitness writer for many years, writing for Men's Health and T Nation. He has decades of experience working with all kinds of people and all the different challenges that come along with it. Hi, Chris. How are you doing, Sam? So let me start off by asking you the story behind the name of your gym, Elemental Fitness Lab. Good question. So many years ago, when I was still living in Los Angeles... I was still, uh, of course, doing martial arts and training people at a big commercial gym. And uh, this is uh, in the days when people had blogs and I was writing articles for Men's Health and other places and uh, thought I should have a, a blog where I could start putting my articles and other thoughts out. And the idea of, uh, you know, five elements uh, in martial arts came into my head. And so I thought about the elements of fitness that people need to address and uh, elements in their lifestyles. And that's where that came about. And did you have a career change at some point where you thought you were going to do something else and got into this? Or was this always the plan? I did. Uh, I got a undergraduate and graduate degree in music, ethnomusicology, to be exact. And out of grad school, I got a job with a record label in Tokyo. And uh, I moved there again as my second time living in Japan and went there and worked with a record label for a few years and then decided to start my own. And that's when we moved back to the U.S. and landed in California. And I ran my own record label there for a few years. You said the second time in Japan. What was your first time? The first time was when I uh, finished undergrad and I decided to go teach English in Japan. So I just moved there in 95 and uh, happened to be introduced to an excellent uh, karate teacher while I was there. And so I basically trained karate full time and uh, taught English in my spare time to make a living. Was that your first introduction into karate and martial arts or had you trained before you went to Japan? I had trained before uh, growing up in the Midwest. I had uh, done a Tai Chi club when I was an undergrad, and then I studied, and then I trained with a, a Goju-ryu, Okinawan Goju-ryu karate group back there for a few years. And done uh, a couple of friends of mine were into JKD, and so we had some informal groups of friends who would get together and spar and play with all that kind of thing. So I wanted to bring you in because I wanted to ask you about 
different training scenarios and use this as something that could be informative for our listeners in their own health journeys and with their own health goals. And also from maybe a coaching perspective, if they're you know a parent and they want their own kid to be more athletic or they're coaching people and they want to help improve their outcome. So the first question or scenario I wanted to ask you is with young athletes and young athletes throughout time. So let's say a young athlete came to you and they just want to train and exercise solely for the purposes of being better at their sport, whatever it may be. So what would be the first thing that you would do? What we do with everybody when they first come in is just sit down and talk with them for an hour. So we would just hang out. I'd ask them about what sports they play, what sort of other activities they do, sort of what level they're at, what sort of goals they have, and uh, just just get a good sense of who they are and uh, their lifestyle and where they want to go. And from that, I'd get a, a sense of, okay, this is how many years this kid's been playing this sport, what other sports have they played, what physical attributes might they have, what might they need. And then we do uh, an assessment, uh, functional movement screen, and some other things to kind of test where they are, how they move, if there's any weak links, what those weak links physically are, like if they have stiff hips or stiff ankles or whatever it might be. Look at their balance, their strength, power, uh, conditioning, maybe take them outside or inside and do some sort of conditioning test and just sort of see where they are with things before we start addressing sports specific needs. So I think general health and general physical preparedness uh, comes before sports specific. So then does that mean you assess everybody the same at the beginning? No, uh, different people we assess differently. So if a, a person comes in who's 75 and has some osteo issues, arthritis or whatnot, uh, we would, of course, assess them differently. Some of the the things we would have them do are different than we would have a 16-year-old kid do. Much gentler, um, you know, be more cautious with the joints of an older person, of course. Probably wouldn't have them run or do some sort of airdyne conditioning test. The demands of what they need in, in life are different from a 16-year-old athlete. So we would take that into account. And actually, you said something that was the same thing that uh, a previous guest has said, Dr. Jason Park, who trains a lot of pro MMA fighters, but he also does a lot of personal training and works with regular population or youth athletes. And he said, before he does any of the sports science stuff of assessment and trying to figure out every weak link, he also likes to spend an hour just talking to them. And I think that's an aspect that maybe regular people don't appreciate. Why do you need to talk to me for an hour? Why do you need to get to know me? And it sounds like for him also, he figured out that that's important through trial and error and experience. So is that something you discovered just doing this for a while that you need to get to know this person and see what they're like? Yeah, I learned early on from a number of my mentors that that's how they assessed their clients and their, their populations. Just the basis of getting to know the person's lifestyle. What type of stress levels do they have? How much do they work? Do they do a lot of sports or activities during the day? Are they sedentary? All these various things play into what, what is going to best help benefit them uh, in our work. So without that information, it's a rather incomplete picture of the person, and we're not going to be able to service them very well. Now, are you also looking at things like compliance or coachability or personality, like Based on their personality, what are they willing to do? 
what won't they probably do? Sure, of course. And that's uh, a part of talking with the person for an hour. You get a sense of how comfortable are they with uh, being taught? What's their experience with working with trainers or coaches or physical therapists? What sort of experiences have they had? Uh, A lot of people we get have had injury histories. And they'll tell us perhaps both positive and negative stories about past trainers, chiropractors, physical therapists, doctors that they have worked with. And it gives us a sense of what type of teaching style may work best and may be more effective in working with this particular person. Because I think a lot of people who go to a trainer or when they're working themselves out, and maybe a lot of young trainers think the same thing, that the client is kind of like a robot that they'll do whatever they tell them to do. And the client also thinks, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And it's not always like that, right? It's definitely not like that. Not if you want to be a good teacher anyway. So is it more like a compromise of trying to do what is most optimal for them while trying to balance their lifestyle, what they could accomplish in their life, and also personality-wise, what things they're willing to do? Yeah, you get a sense of how how much time and energy people will invest in exercise. So we talk with people a lot and we put on our questionnaires a question regarding how much time they're willing to spend outside the gym. So we'll give them things that they should do every day and get a sense of how willing they are to do that. And we have to adjust what we give them with the sense we get regarding how willing they are and how much time they want to put into it. So we have to adjust what we give them based on the feedback that they're always giving us. Otherwise, it's not going to be effective. They're, if you give them too much, they're not going to do anything at all. If you give them too little, uh, it won't be effective. And there's a term that you used earlier, general physical preparedness. That means a general positive state of health. So cardiovascular health, do their joints function well? Uh, soft tissue health, are they loose or rather tight? in terms of uh, you know their arms and legs and joint function can their ankles move without hurting or cracking or you know impeding their movement can their hips move pretty well do they have normal flexion and extension in their thoracic spine uh, can they rotate their body left and right well all the all these different things and get a sense of uh, the person's general stress level in their life because that that definitely affects things like sleep nutrition affects all of it what sort of health they're in? Have they had joint replacement surgeries? Have they had uh, other types of medical issues? That all comes into play. So is general physical preparedness kind of like the baseline bar that you're testing for to see if they're already there and whether they're an athlete or just a regular person, that becomes an aim then to get everybody to be at least generally physically prepared for life and activity? Yes, and that depends on the person, how old they are, what they do in their lives. If their main activity is gardening or playing with their grandkids, they want to be able to run and play on the beach and pick up their grandkids without having back pain. Then their level of GPP is certainly different than an 18-year-old athlete looking to uh, go into college and play sports. So we we take all that into account uh, as to what GPP means for that particular person. Now, did that take you a while to realize you have to have a different definition for each person? Or did you know that right away? Well, I knew that right away because I worked with a pretty wide variety of people starting out. But my knowledge has definitely improved over the years as I've worked with 
a number of clinicians and most of my continuing education in the past 10 years maybe has been all courses aimed more at clinicians so more of the rehab side of things so getting to understand more uh, about how clinicians work with their patients and what sort of needs that population has and how they address it is certainly different than say the healthy 30 year old who comes into the gym and just wants to get jacked so the needs are quite different. And so uh, we've learned to be better in our uh, needs analysis. And do you also find that having been a martial artist that gives you a different perspective on training people and exercise science than maybe uh, just somebody who only came at it just from the health and fitness side? I do, because I think martial artists have different demands in their activities. Spatial awareness, coordination, using your entire body to move in different directions and be on the ground, rolling, falling, jumping, all these sort of things are quite a bit different than what the average person who just comes into the gym wanting to look good thinks about in terms of physicality. So I think having that background made me look at exercise quite differently than perhaps the, a person who just came into it from perhaps a bodybuilding background or just wanting to look good, where they wouldn't necessarily... Uh, take into account all those things. How much has bodybuilding just shaped our views about health and fitness? And that becomes the standard way where everybody imagines, oh, you want to get in shape, whether it's for sport or for weight loss or general health, you exercise like that. I think it's been very influential. One of my mentors, Dr. Ed Thomas, who is in his mid 70s now, grew up in Iowa training at what's called a Turnverein Hall. And that's a sort of a German social, social club that uh, came here with German immigrants in the 19th century. And they still had one of these gymnasiums in a small town in Iowa when he grew up. And there was no such thing as bodybuilding back then. What they had were uh, teaching methods where they taught kids uh, general physical health, such as the skills of climbing ropes, uh, how to do gymnastics. They taught them how to box, how to wrestle, how to use Indian clubs, calisthenics. And they didn't even have the word workout. That wasn't even a concept that they thought about. It was more like practice. You just go to this hall, this gymnasium, and the teachers would have you practice and learn these different skills. And when you were tired, you were done for the day. And the workout, sort of like in martial arts, the workout is the side effect right? You're practicing skills. You're learning a choke or a form or a kick or a punch. And the physical benefits you get from that is just the side effect of the skill training. So that's how they used to approach physical training, which is completely different than just doing prescribed sets of reps and uh, work your shoulders, work your legs, back day, leg day, etc. So that completely transformed how gymnasiums were structured. And then going into the 50s, when bodybuilding started to come about, then uh, people started to build these uh, weightlifting machines. Uh, even the bench press didn't exist then. So you didn't lie on a bench and lift a weight. They just had barbells lying on the ground. So you had to just pick it up from the floor if you wanted to use a barbell. So all, all of these things radically changed when uh, bodybuilding came about. So it kind of changed the paradigm where the side effect became the goal. But in a weird roundabout way, 
that actually made being fit and looking that way even harder to get because when you made that the goal, it made it somehow like further away. Exactly. Because it leaves a lot of things out of the equation when you just think of things in, in bodybuilding terms. You know, there's a lot of a lot of different facets of physical health that aren't covered when you just train like that. So it's kind of like trying to look the part instead of living the life. But if you don't live the life, you're not going to look the part anyway. Exactly. I have a really good real life example. So a friend of mine named uh, Nate Green, who used to write and be an editor for T Nation, and uh, he, he wrote a couple of books and uh, he came to my gym. He, he was a friend uh, and he he was, I think, about 27, 28 and really jacked. I mean, really well-built guy because he'd done bodybuilding and powerlifting for many years, but he couldn't lift his his hands over his head. He said his shoulders hurt too much and his back constantly hurt. And this is a kid who, you know, at the time weighing like 190 pounds could bench press 225 for like 20 reps, you know, so pretty damn strong when it comes to uh, power lifts and sort of bodybuilding type of training. He had gone, gone and done some articles where he worked out with NFL players training for the combine at Joe DeFranco's gym, things like that. Uh, but he admitted that he didn't even go to the gym anymore because he hurt so much and he's just so bored of it. He's just, I just can't get motivated to lift anything. I'm just, everything hurts and I'm tired of it. And so uh, his term he uses for that now is a recovering fitness junkie. <laughs> and he actually started a little uh, online coaching side business for uh, guys who were just burned out, who had been training, you know, bodybuilding and powerlifting and just hurt everywhere now. And they were just bored of lifting things for sets and reps, you know, just the standard lifts. And so what I had him do is, okay. And I took more of an approach of having him do things based on gymnastic and martial arts type of exercises since his, his dad is a martial arts instructor. So he got that making himself uh, more mobile and flexible so that he felt better and so that he wanted to do more things as his body felt better. So his shoulders felt better, his hips felt better, his back felt better. And then he wanted to get into rock climbing. And that became a new motivation to come into the gym and stay in shape so he could skateboard, boulder, do all these other activities. And completely, you know, it's, it's quite a bit different than just training for looks. So that's a, a nice real world example of someone who is really into that type of training until their body couldn't take it anymore and they were bored of it and started a, a type of training that's more about general physical health. You know, do you feel good? It's a weird misnomer because you look at somebody like Ronnie Coleman, who's basically crippled from the way he was exercising, or you have these people who just run marathons all the time and they have really damaged their knees. But in our minds for regular people, somebody like Ronnie Coleman or somebody who runs marathons all the time is our pinnacle of health. But if you think about it, they're not trying to get healthier. They're just trying to do the activity and win. Right. And I talk about that. We talk about that with people in the gym all the time who come in and they say their goal is to run hood to coast or a marathon or triathlon or whatever it might be. And we have a conversation with them and explain that, look, performance and health are not necessarily the same things. And they're often in opposition to each other. You talk to any athlete who has played in, in you know, NCAA 
division schools, and they generally hate training. They generally don't feel very good. They have a lot, you know, tend to have a lot of physical issues because of training and just getting beat up. So speaking of that, then let's go back to our young athlete example. So now that you have talked to them and you see what kind of things they like, what they've already done, who they've worked with, let's say this person is a basketball player, they're 14. What are the things that you can do to help them or somebody listening who wants to improve their basketball as far as just, of course, just practicing the sport itself is probably one of the best ways to get good at the sport. But outside of that, what can they do to improve themselves at the sport? But not only that, mitigate some of the downsides of the sport as far as injuries or becoming misbalanced. It's pretty typical that these days, kids at that age are starting to play their sport year round. So they're really getting beat up at a young age. I have physical therapist friends who talk all the time about the young athletes they see coming in 12, 13, 14 years old with all sorts of overuse injuries that perhaps 20 years ago would be typical only of collegiate or pro athletes. So they're really getting beat up at a young age. So the way I look at it is we have to make these kids as robust physically as possible so they can withstand the demands of their game. So more than improving their performance on the court, it's about can they stay healthy playing their sport? And I have friends who work with uh, various pro teams and various pro sports, and they talk about training in-season pro athletes as triage. In other words, they're not going to get faster. They're not going to get stronger during the season. That's not the goal. They're just trying to keep them healthy so they can get on the field or on the court the next week. And that's basically all they can do because they're just getting beat beat up so much. So with a young athlete, I would, especially in basketball, they're going to do obviously a lot of running and jumping. So their ankles need to be good health. Their knees need to be in good health. Their hips and legs need to be as strong as possible. Uh, their trunk muscles, their core need to be as strong as possible uh, to withstand all the compressive forces of running and jumping. Uh, so those are some of the things that I would probably focus on with a, uh, any young basketball player. So with this basketball player, they're sprinting, they're jumping a lot. Would you have them do stuff like box jumps when they come in to see you? Would you have them put a bar on their back and do heavy squats? What are some of the things that you would have them do and not have them do? And what are some of the things that might be counterintuitive? You're like, you probably don't want to do that. Well, the easy one is basketball players tend to be fairly tall and have long tibias and femurs and long spines. So for those type of people, loading a bar on their back and doing back squats is usually not the best idea. And is not productive just to, uh, they can't get into those positions very well if they're tall. And most often it's not the most productive way anyway, unless they're a power lifter. So what we do is, can this person do lunges, simple body weight lunges or split squats, uh, different variations of that, step up, step downs, uh, single leg squats, etc. Things that put much less strain on their hips and back and knees and, uh, just make them strong without adding more strain and compression on their joints. What about things like box jumps? Because you see explosive athletes who have to jump a lot for their sport anyway, doing more jumping when they're doing strength and conditioning. 
Is that a good idea or is that probably overload where they're doing too much of it? There's a time and place for that. And that it, it depends on the time of year and if you're pre-season, in-season, off-season. And generally, if you're working on power for uh, a basketball athlete, you'd want to do that after they've already done a pretty robust period of time doing just general strength exercises, lunges, step up, step down, single leg squats, presses, pulls, all, all those sort of things that don't uh, have a lot of impact. And general conditioning, you know, getting them uh, on a bike, a rower, whatever your method may be of conditioning an athlete. Uh, then at the end, you know, if you're doing some power and agility, great. But the volume on that plyometrics requires is pretty low. So people don't need to do a whole lot of box jumps. Uh, it's more about quality and quality of controlling the forces when you land than about how high you jump. That's how I would approach it. And that's how I've seen it approached by other strength and conditioning coaches. And a buzzword you'll hear a lot is core. And I think that's the term that regular health and fitness adopted from the training that pro athletes do, but I don't know if they fully understand it. So when you're dealing with this young athlete, are you having them do tons of planks, crunches, I don't know what else that, you know, twisting exercises, or are you having them do just a little bit of it at the beginning, maybe more like planks to activate the core, and then the core should be just continuously exercising all the different other movements. What we do is assess a person, and we might have them do uh, front planks and side planks just to assess their trunk stability and strength. And let's say if they can hold a front plank for a minute to two minutes and hold a side plank for, let's say, 90 seconds per side, and there's some research on this, they probably don't need to keep doing planks. If they can hold that in, with good form and do it well, then they're ready. That means they're ready to move on to some other type of, uh, you know, higher level uh, trunk exercises, and they don't need to keep doing planks. So we only keep people on certain things depending on what level they're at. So if a person can't do a plank very well, yeah, we'll put some planks in their in their program to get them becoming stronger. But once they're at a certain level, then we make exercises more dynamic or more challenging in different ways to keep challenging the person at the appropriate level. So yeah, of course, uh, core or more appropriately called trunk training, which includes hips, back, so your front and your back. We would choose exercises and durations that keep challenging the person. No, no sense in having a person do static planks. If that's easy for them, they won't get any benefit from it. So we would keep trying to find more dynamic, challenging exercises for them to do safely. And that would keep them improving and becoming more more robust. So you don't need to beat a dead horse? No. And you said trunk. Does that also include the hips and the glutes? Would you consider that part of that whole same complex? Yes, you can't separate one from the other. Uh, the muscle fibers and the fascia of, of the hip muscles are connected directly to your abdominal muscles, which are connected directly to your lats and other muscles in your back, in your chest, in your shoulder, etc. So all of those things work together. I think because of like bodybuilding and also these infomercials that show you these muscles anatomically isolated from one another. And because we have different names for each area, maybe people think each area 
is really separate and not attached to the other areas. But you're saying, no, they're all interconnected. And in fact, it might be the same uh, fibers that go over all of them, like you mentioned, the fascia. Absolutely. Uh, you can't do a, a push-up with also out, you know, engaging your legs and your hips. You know, try to do a push-up or or any other movement you care to name uh, without using, you know, your entire body. Uh, another teacher of mine, Dan John, who's a, a pretty well-known strength and conditioning guy, says the body. You know, his main catchphrase is the body is one piece. Let's train it as such. So, can you briefly explain to us what the fascia is? Uh, so if you've ever, uh, cooked a chicken and there's, you've noticed that there's a, a white viscous sort of layer, uh, of tissue over, over the meat that you eat, that's the muscle, uh, that's fascia. So it's, it's a layer of tissue we have between, uh, our skin and our muscles. And it's, people describe it as something like a wetsuit that covers our entire body. And it is contractile tissue. So it does contract. Some researchers say that when we stretch, we're not actually stretching muscles, we're stretching fascia, that the muscle is too dense to really stretch very much. You know, the length of your muscles doesn't change. Your muscles are attached at certain points on the bone, right? And so the muscles uh, are elastic and they provide tension to hold your joints and your musculoskeletal system in place. So is it kind of similar to the same idea as wearing like a knee sleeve or kinesio tape or like a really tight under armor? It's like our body has naturally created that between the skin and the muscle that kind of holds us together. Yeah, that's one way to think about it. I mean, our our skin holds us together and there's various layers and then there's your fascia and all all of these things are just layers that are, are structured together. And then there's muscle tendon, ligaments, and bone. So it's more like a redundancy system. We have multiple layers of support. Multiple layers of support and fibers running in different directions. So like, uh, you you can think of wood grain. Uh, So you have like in in your uh, abdominal muscles, you have internal and external obliques. And that tissue runs in different directions. So that makes things able to move, but it also creates better tension and is much, much stronger than if everything were just running in uh, one direction, right? So there, so there's these multiple layers of tissue that wrap around our body, both running in all different directions. And something else you were saying earlier about when I was asking you about box jumps and different things that they should or shouldn't do, you were saying it depends on what are you working on at the time. So my question is about then periodization, which is that working on different things at different times. Now, would an athlete like this, who you said earlier, maybe they're playing year round now. Can you do periodization? Is periodization even useful? And also for people who don't know, what is periodization? Those are all good questions. So periodization means you do a phase of perhaps one to three months where the person is working on perhaps low intensity, cardiovascular health. You might do a phase where you're working on higher volume, uh, general physical strength. That may look something like uh, your typical bodybuilding program where you're doing two to four sets of general exercises for upper, lower, and body. Then you might do a phase where you're working more on power. So quick movements, think uh, Olympic lifts and plyometrics, box jumps, things like that. You might do another phase 
uh, including more of those type of exercises to build upon the previous phase. So that's what periodization is. Whether or not a young athlete needs much of that, it's debatable. Depends on the person, I think, and how much experience they've had, uh, how mature they are physically. So the more mature physically uh, an athlete is, probably the more effective uh, periodizing their training will be. Uh, if you take a 14-year-old who isn't very physically mature, uh, you probably need to stick more to general physical uh, strength exercises and not work too much of the quick movements. They might not be strong enough to handle it. Now, with training somebody who's a young athlete, is it realistic to even plan a year out? Because maybe you don't even know how long you're going to work with this person. So do you just, if you do do periodization, do you do it for much smaller blocks? I think it's good to have a larger framework in place and then be flexible in adjusting that because you're always going to need to adjust. You know, the, the kid might come in after a weekend tournament and just be beaten up and there goes your plan for the next two weeks. If the person is just too beaten up, you might just have to go back uh, to something less physically demanding. So it's good to have a large uh, framework in place, but then build build in smaller blocks within it and then be flexible uh, enough to change those things around uh, depending on the person and their needs. Now, let's say instead of a basketball player, it's a little bit older person who's trying to get strong for football. Now they want help in improving their strength. And let's say something like doing five by five, five sets, five reps. That's very popular online. Is it actually a very uh, useful way to get strong? You do very heavy weights, do five sets of it, do a lot of break in between and do just five reps. That's a pretty good way to go. That's uh, um, Ken Starr's classic five by five program. And there's, you know, thousands of variations on that over the years. And in general, I mean, it can be a pretty good framework. It really depends on the person, you know, and a, each person should be monitoring their progress as they go. And if you're making progress, great, kind of keep doing what you're doing. If you're not making progress, reevaluate. Maybe you need to, maybe this person adapts better to more volume. So doing things above 10 reps rather than below. You know, some persons are high responders, some persons are low responders to various things. Some people respond really well to lower repetition, higher weight, higher intensity things. Uh, some people don't respond well to that at all, and they get better gains by doing higher volume training with lower weights. Uh, so it really depends on the individual. Let's say you're a strength athlete and they decide to do the five by five. Can you do that year round? Or is that a mistake and you might actually injure yourself? In general, that's probably not a good idea to do year round. I think that you need to give your body a break. And I think even a strength athlete, let's say in football, you need to be pretty cardiovascularly fit to be a good football player too. So I think there's periods of time where adding in more low intensity aerobic exercise, whether that be in the gym or outside, will give greater benefits than just being hitting the weights hard. And it's going to make them uh, a better football player. I was thinking of a friend in town here who trains uh, some collegiate and professional players, and he's trained some of these guys since they're 12 or 13 years old. 
And he includes quite a lot of low intensity cardiovascular exercise in their training and sort of slow cooks them so that they're pretty healthy and very fit by the time they're playing high school football. And a lot of these guys have better success uh, staying injury, you know, maybe less injuries and just more physically fits by the time they get to college than kids who are just in the gym banging weights all the time. I have a lot of friends who are, they're not necessarily professional strength athletes, but they're more training powerlifting, not because they want to compete and not because they care about what they look like. They just want to be as freakishly strong as possible, but because they're not doing it to be a professional athlete and they're not doing it to be a professional powerlifter, they also don't want to get hurt. With somebody like that where I just want to get strong, what's the point of me doing some low-intensity cardio? But even with somebody like that who just wants to get strong without injury, should they take time off of the hypertrophy or just maximal strength phase of their training and do something else for a while just to let their body heal and recover? Absolutely. Lower intensity exercise, be it with lighter weights or body weight exercise or hiking or cycling or you know any other sort of low intensity exercise is very beneficial to soft tissue and musculoskeletal health in general. So if you have periods where you're doing more of that and, you know, take it a little bit easier in the gym, your gains will actually, you know, I mean, you'll, you'll keep getting stronger uh, when you do up the weights again, and your body will be feeling better and you'll be in a little better place. Uh, your joints will have a chance to recover, uh, not get beaten up all the time. Your soft tissue will probably be in a little, little better shape. Uh, it's very advisable. Isn't there even some research talking about taking some time off might be even good for your overall morale and also just lifting heavy is very taxing on your nervous system and your brain. And so taking a break is also just good for your overall system. Absolutely. Uh, professional athletes in just about any sport, they have an off season and those guys are not playing or training very much, if at all, when they're taking a break. I mean, they like professional cyclists, for instance, they might go a month or more without even touching a bike. You know, they'll go, they'll go hit a beach. They'll just chill out. They won't even, they won't even get on a bike, you know, and just get that mental break because they train so much. Uh, so no matter what your sport is, I think it's, it's healthy just to, just to do other things. So we shouldn't consider that being lazy. It's actually good for us. It's very good for you. So here's another scenario. It's a middle-aged person coming in just wants to lose weight. What considerations do you take for this person? So again, we would sit down and talk with them and try to get a sense of their lifestyle. How much do they work? How stressful is their job? How stressful is their life? Uh, spouse, kids, etc. How much time do they generally devote to uh, physical activity? How much time can they devote to physical activity? Uh, what sort, what level are they at? How do they, how strong are they now? How in what sort of shape are they in now? So we'll do, we'll cover that in the, uh, the assessment and just get a sense of where they are now and then come up with a plan, uh, that best meets the person. Maybe this person only has two hours a week for a while that they can devote to exercise. Uh, I work with a lot of people who travel all the time, airline pilots, uh, people who travel for different 
they work for whatever tech company or any other type of company where they have to travel a lot. And so we, t- we design programs for them that they can do in their hotel room, in the hotel gym, uh, with simple equipment that they can bring with them. You know, 15 minutes is better than nothing. So we'll often give them things, a little routine that they can do here. Set a, set a clock for 15, 20 minutes, whatever you have. Go through this little circuit of exercises, uh, mobility, movement, stretches, etc., for 20 minutes or whatever it might be. And just try to get them doing something daily, if possible. You don't have to devote an hour to going into a gym. You can do something at home uh, for 15, 20 minutes, half an hour. You know, we try to meet them where they are and work with, you know, the constraints of their life. And that will give them more benefit than perhaps complaining to them that, hey, you need to hit the weights five days a week, three days a week. That's not necessary for people to be in good health. It's really not. You know, we shoot for maybe, okay, maybe twice a week. If you can do your full uh, program, that generally takes between 45 minutes and an hour. If you can do that twice a week, and then the other days you're taking a walk, you're doing some basic stretching and mobility movements on your own. Yeah, that might cover it, man. You might be good with that. So if somebody's working a lot of hours, has a lot of responsibility, they shouldn't be shooting for the best method, but instead they should be aiming for the best, most practical method for them. I think so. My wife, for example, works uh, 60 hours plus a week, maybe, and travels. And the only time she has to really uh, exercise in a gym or, you know, like in our home gym we have in our in our garage is on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. And we also have two little kids that are going to be running around the entire time. But it works. You know, she can do some exercise uh, each day on the weekend and then during the week, you know, take a walk when possible, you know, do some little things here and there for a few minutes. Uh, That's enough. Now, if your goal is to lose weight, what is the most important thing then? Is diet the most important thing, even above exercise? Most likely, yes. It depends on the person and their lifestyle and how they eat. But for most people, it's food and hydration and how that fits into their everyday life. So we work with uh, people and just see what foods do they like to eat? What do they not like to eat? Uh, Do they have time to eat lunch or don't they have time to eat lunch or breakfast? You know, some people feel better not eating breakfast. That's cool. Some people skip lunch. That's fine if they feel good doing it. You know, so we we adjust those things depending on the person. Um, And everyone's a little bit different as far as that goes. But uh, yeah, food is is a hard one. And it is, I would say, generally more important or as important at least as uh, exercise when it comes to losing weight. Now, with so many different diets out there, from your experience, is it ultimately the most practical system still the old calorie counting system? Again, I think that depends on the person. Some people, that works really well. And I've used that with a number of people who tend to be uh, people who focus well on details and they like details and counting calories sometimes works very, very well for those people. You know, they keep a calorie log, uh, some type of food log, and 
you know, we help with accountability with that. For some people that doesn't work well at all, they're like, they're just not going to do it. They might do it for a few days and it's going to add stress to their life and they're going to sort of rebel and probably gain another 10 pounds. So for those people, we try to get a sense of that right, right away and just not have them do a food log at all or count calories and just figure out what sort of, uh, strategies will work best in their life. Let's say some people say, yeah, you know, I skip breakfast a lot and it doesn't really bother me too much. Oh, okay, great. So here's a chance where this person feels fine skipping breakfast. Maybe they have some, I don't know, do you like smoothies? I don't know. Make a little smoothie in the morning so that they're not maybe too hungry by the time they get to lunch and then just, you know, eat three burritos for lunch or whatever it might be. Or maybe they just have a, a, a real light, a light salad with some protein or whatever it is at lunch if they like, you know, if they like salads. And that's going to help reduce overall caloric intake and still, you know, they'll still feel pretty good and still have energy. You know, so it depends on the person. So it's about intercepting problems before they arise. Exactly. Trying to see which plan or wh- wh- what sort of strategies are going to fit best with that particular person in their, in their life. And when I brought up calorie counting, I'm not even saying calorie counting is the most scientific, but if you've known people who've tried to lose weight for a long time, you realize what's most important isn't what's most scientific or the most optimal. What's most useful is what can actually work. What can they do? And what most people can do isn't going to be the one where you have to log a bunch of stuff and look at all your macros and all this stuff. It's just something that is very easy. Yes. I have some long-term clients who... They go away, they go up to their uh, home in Canada every summer and they come back and they generally, they might have gained some weight that they don't like. So they, we figured out over the number of years that what works good for them is to do sort of a Whole Foods or Atkins type of approach where they just take out all the starchy carbohydrates for a while. So they're just basically reducing, automatically reducing calories. So they're not counting calories. They're just taking out the bread and pasta essentially from their diet for a month or two. And then they drop weight right away just doing that because they're just reducing the calories. They don't count anything. They just take it away and eat normally, you know, what they normally eat without that stuff. And then over time, they slowly start to add a little bit of that back in so that they don't feel too restricted. So that doesn't add, you know, anxiety. You're like, hey, I want to have some bread once in a while. They've lost, uh, they lost some, you know, 10, 15 pounds, whatever it is over the next month or two. And they start feeling, oh, yeah, okay, I'm lighter again. You know, I can start to add in a little bread and they they keep it sustainable. So generally, then the best diet for you is the easiest diet to follow based on your personality and the constraints of your lifestyle. Precisely. Um, For myself, uh, I just uh, just take it easy on a couple couple of simple food items when I want to lose weight, going full paleo or keto or whatever other diet is out there for myself, I know is not going to work very well because my family doesn't eat like that. They don't want to eat like that. You know, it's not going to work. So figuring that out for each person is, uh, I think is a big key. So diet has to be easy because their higher functioning brain is worried about their family, their work, all this stuff. Diet shouldn't be one of those things that also causes a lot of stress. Exactly. If, if the diet causes stress, the more stress it causes in a person's life, the less likely they are to do it and the less successful they're going to be. Now, as far as exercise, then for somebody who has limited time, 
what is the best bang for their buck? Should they just be doing a lot of high intensity stuff, strength training stuff? Again, that depends on the person and you know what sort of health uh, and fitness they're in right now. But in general, some strength training will uh, benefit just about everybody, I think. And everybody needs some cardiovascular exercise as well. So it could be an hour or two a week of general strength exercises, you know, and some type of structured program doesn't have to be very complicated. Uh, You make sure you're doing some, perhaps some upper body pulling exercises, upper body pushing exercises, some lower body, you know, hip dominant exercise or knee dominant type of squats or lunges, a couple sets of those of each. Uh, per week, you know, one or two sessions is plenty, along with some general cardiovascular exercise, whatever you enjoy. We tell people just whatever you like to do. Do you like to jump rope? Do you like to go for long walks? Do you like to go hike up in the hills? Do you like to ride bike? All of it is good. Do whatever you enjoy uh, in that capacity. But if you're time constrained, do you even have time for periodization? Generally not. So with those people, we would just generally do uh, more general strength exercises, you know, which could include body weight movements. It could be just push-ups, you know, some type of lunging, squatting, rows, kettlebell swings, you know, whatever it might be. Just covering covering all their bases as far as uh, movement planes, and uh, you know, depending what sort of time they have, and make sure they they do some some stretching, some foam rolling, do some walks run, bike, whatever, whatever they enjoy, whatever they have time for. Maybe they can get that in by commuting to work, you know, by bike, you know, great. So for this person compared to the young athlete, it seems like it's much less about exercise science and having to use all the research material out there as far as the best way to gain strength or agility or explosiveness. And it's much more about practicality. You don't need all that for this person. You just need to figure out what they can do when they can do it and what they're willing to do. Yes. I have a lot of clients that come into the gym once a week. And so I have one, one hour a week with them. And the main goal is to make, make them feel good, right? How are you feeling? How's your back feeling today? How are your hips feeling today? Uh, does your neck hurt or your shoulders tight, etc.? Okay. Here's some things you can do. Let's do this. Let's work on a couple of these things, you know, and then do these things on your own, you know, another day or two a week, along with, you know, taking a walk, perhaps uh, every day if possible. So, you know, it can be as simple as that. So if somebody's listening to this, and they are that person who's really busy and working a lot and has a lot of responsibilities, then what they should glean from this is they should be really realistic about what they can do. Exactly. We see, you know, I've seen many people over the years who's come in and they think they need to do three to five days a week in the gym. And I've learned over the years to just talk with them and say, look, this is probably not realistic or even a good idea for you based on how busy you are, you know, busy job, kids, etc. No, they don't have time for that. And it's not necessary. It's absolutely not necessary. Take that, you know, let's remove that stress of that idea of having to do that to be fit or be healthy. It's absolutely not necessary. Twice a week, plenty. They're, they'll probably, you do that over time two times a strength training a week over six months, a year, two years, five years, 10 years, you're going to be strong enough to do whatever you want to do. 
So they should not be giving up their precious sleep to try to hit the gym. Absolutely not. Now, with somebody trying to lose weight and who's very time constrained and somebody who's a working stiff, are there considerations you make based on if they're male or female? It's less so about that and more so about the particular person and the demands they have on their time and their energy. So it's, again, about practicality. Yeah, whatever the person is going to be able to do. And then we'll figure out exercise that's going to be the most efficient for that person and you know, adjust a program that they're going to enjoy and they're going to want to do and they feel good doing. So we should all work with what we got, not try to work with something we don't got. I tell people uh, when they come into the gym just to stop reading things like men's health and uh, <laughs> women's health and stop looking at fitness and health websites and just ignore all that crap out there because most of it is just it's garbage. I mean, there's some good stuff out there, but you know, it's you have to develop a filter, right? Uh, the New York Times health section is generally pretty good. That's one thing I'll point people to. I'm like, oh, you know, most of those articles in there, you know, where they're going over research that's been done is uh, it's generally pretty good. But uh, stay away from most things. New York Times did that whole like seven minute workout thing. Well, like I said, you need to have a filter, <laughs> <laughs> and we joke about that all the time with, uh, with people in the gym, they bring in things, uh, that we laugh about. And finally, let me ask you about somebody who's older, maybe has some injuries. How should they work out? Or maybe it's not even somebody older. It's somebody who's middle-aged or even younger, but coming off some injuries. How should they exercise or should they not exercise at all? And it's too dangerous. Well, I would never say they shouldn't exercise at all. I've never come across a case like that. Uh, but you need to be careful. My advice would be find a good trainer uh, or physical therapist or other clinician who can refer you to a trainer that can work with you to make a program that you feel good on, that's kind to your joints. The risks are just higher. You just have to be more careful. Yeah. Let's say you can't afford a trainer, but you just came off an injury or you're an older person. What are some of the things that they can do on their own? Well, any sort of exercise that's lower impact. So walking is a great example. Uh, I think walking will benefit just about everybody. Some basic body weight movements, if you can do them healthily, like squatting, lunging, um, some sort of uh, hip hinge or, or deadlift type of exercise, even using very lightweight push-ups, uh, static planks, if they're not too easy, anything like that, I think is, is good to, good to do in general and not going to put a whole lot of, uh, strain, uh, and compression on your, uh, on your joints. What about using machines like those hammer strength machines or Nautilus or lifestyle machines where you're not dealing with the instability of free weights, but because you're injured, you know, you're going to be stable inside this machine. Yes. I think they can be beneficial. Definitely. Uh, some very smart physical therapist friends of mine use uh, various machines with their patients all the time. And, uh, you know, they get better. They get stronger. Are there any types of machines you should avoid? Like, what are the good machines and what are the bad machines as far as trying to increase strength? In general, I think uh, any machine that loads your spine, compresses your spine so that you're not in a relatively upright neutral position 
with your back is might not be a good idea. So if your back is or pelvis is forced to round in any of those machines, it's probably not a good idea. So maybe some of those leg press machines? Exactly. What about those machines where you do weighted crunches? Uh, yes, I would generally stay away from crunches because that, again, is forcing uh, your spine into flexion under load. So even if it's not a machine, right? In general, if you're somebody older or coming off an injury, you shouldn't do crunches. We tend to avoid crunches altogether. Uh, there's a maybe a particular uh, variation, uh, the McGill curl, uh, named after Professor Stuart McGill, that we often use for people who come in who've had a history of back pain. But basically, that's just to teach them how to put tension into their anterior trunk, their, their core muscles, rather than put tension into their low back. And to teach them how to hold relatively neutral spine while doing that, we find that beneficial. But we don't have people do any sit-ups or crunches at all, ever. Is this something you think you could describe right now? So you would lie on your back with your knees bent and uh, find a comfortable position for your back to be in so your back isn't arched and it's not rounded either. And you're basically going to take in a big breath into your diaphragm, into your belly, and tense your abdominal muscles. And you're gonna try to gradually, slowly, maybe lift your shoulder blades away from the floor. Maybe you don't even break contact with the floor, but you're just trying to use your tension in your abdomen to slowly raise uh, your upper back off the floor and then bring it back down. And just doing a few repetitions of that, getting your body used to how to use your uh, anterior trunk muscles, your core muscles, to stiffen your midsection and uh, control your upper body. And when you say bend your knees, you mean bend your knees and feet flat on the ground, right? Yes, thank you. Just like a standard uh, uh, crunch position. But instead of rounding your back, you're trying to keep your back relatively straight. So it's actually much more difficult. Yeah, which is the reason why you might not even lift your upper back off the ground at all. It might just maybe break contact with the ground. It's, it's not a very big movement. Now, my last question is regarding the squat. The squat has made a huge comeback over the last several years. Is that something that almost anybody can do? Because you will even see people say, even if you have knee injuries, you should squat. Well, everyone needs to sit on a toilet and get up off a toilet uh, or sit on a chair, right? That's squatting. Like, let's say I have two bad knees. What's a good type of squat for me so I could build up leg strength? So with people who uh, we work with who have a history of knee, knee problems, we will uh, put a box or bench behind them and find an appropriate height. And so we teach people how to use their hips when they squat, which takes strain off of their knee. So the more force and weight you can put into your hips in terms of sitting back and down to a box, people will usually right away feel uh, less strain in their knees. So getting them used to a squat pattern, which is uh, focuses more on hip movement rather than just bending forward from the knee, is beneficial to those people. And uh, that a lot of times carries over into uh, their walking, hiking, even running, where they'll feel their hips working more efficiently and 
you know, a lot of times people come back and say, oh, I did a hike that I've always done that I always hurt my knees, but this time my knees didn't hurt and my glutes were sore. Those are two pieces of feedback we get all the time from that type of population. Once we teach them how to use their hips more effectively when they squat, when they lunge, uh, when they step up to things, focusing more on hip rather than uh, knee flexion. So would a movement like that, or maybe any movement, I think people have it in their heads that they need to focus on a certain muscle group. So maybe while they're squatting, they're trying to squeeze their glutes and hamstrings in the movement, or they're trying to feel it in that area. Is focusing on an area really beneficial at all, or is it more about doing the movement correctly and wherever you feel it is wherever you feel it? It's both. It depends on the person. Some people we coach uh, who have a hard time uh, feeling their their glutes working. They don't feel anything in, in their gluteal muscles. So we try to put them in positions and coach them in a way that uh, helps them to feel that. Maybe we tell them to use their own fingertips and poke themselves in the butt while they're doing it, you know, and squeeze their gluteal muscles while they do it. Maybe that helps them feel it you know, in the initial stages, you know, we figure out those strategies that help them, uh, to use their hips better. Now, let's say they don't feel the area at all. Does that mean that that area isn't working or is it more just like, maybe you don't feel it, but that doesn't mean the area is not working. Well, if it wasn't working, they probably wouldn't be able to stand up and walk at all. <laughs> so, you know, that whole thing about gluteal amnesia, I don't, I don't think there's much to that. Because they can stand, they can sit down. Can you sit down? Yes. Can you get up? Yes. Okay. Well, your hips are doing something. You know, they're working. You're, you're able to walk. Because I think people get this paranoia that even though they did the movement, because they didn't feel it in that area that they thought they were supposed to feel it, they think that area didn't get worked. They just might not be tuned in yet. Yeah. So we try to help them tune in to what that part of their body is doing, you know, build that uh, neuromuscular connection perhaps. So they sense, they get more better awareness of what's happening. So if you feel it, great. If you don't feel it, it's not the end of the world because if that area didn't work at all, you wouldn't have, let's say in a squat, been able to get up at all. Yes. I think we've covered a lot. I think this is really helpful for a lot of people. So where can people find you? Elementalfitnesslab.com. We have a Facebook page, Elemental Fitness Lab on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter, which I hardly ever use. So you may not see many things uh, on there. Uh, more often, I'm, I'm on our uh, Facebook page putting up information. So I'll just relay articles, videos, photographs, uh, you know, just give good information to people. Uh, or you can reach out to me on, on Facebook, uh, just Chris Bathke on Facebook. But that'll be more uh, like us talking politics and uh, <laughs> MMA and music and uh, whatever, you know, real life stuff. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Sam. A pleasure. <laughs>